and welcome to the Laura Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation we had with Sam Quinones about his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. That's right. I anticipated the book to be, you know, Sam is a journalist. He's a seasoned journalist who does very investigative work. But so much of this book is is the personal stories of people sort of going through colliding with the systems of distribution of these drugs and sort of suffering through these drugs kind of going through this country. Yeah, I think the book is interesting because it it's not just about like vigilante cartels or or dealers it's really like a full-on indictment of the entire United States and the way that communities have been broken down and the corrosive element of corporations both in the way they kind of destroy community life in small towns they destroy the landscape of small towns but then they also are uh, purveyors of drugs themselves you know and pushers themselves and I thought it's it's great how Sam doesn't draw distinctions really so it's it's really like this huge panoramic story where there's not a hierarchy of people who get other people addicted to drugs you know for a book about drugs there's like very little moralism at all. And um, except in the way of, you know, saying how much America sucks, but beyond that, he's not making people feel bad or judging people from having done drugs or even selling them because you can kind of understand why people would, would want to, or need to do all of these things, given the full picture of the countries involved that, that he writes about. So yeah, it's, I was like anticipating it to be really depressing book, and of course it is, but it, it's also just a like very, very well-told story. So I didn't find it like difficult to read. I actually found it kind of exhilarating at times to just see like this world out there that I didn't know the um, extent of that Sam has done such amazing research and uh, reporting on. So I thought it was really, really, really well done and it seems kind of sick to say, but I did really like reading it. Well, let's get to the interview. Okay, great. We're honored to be speaking with the writer Sam Quinones today. Sam Quinones is the author of a number of books, most recently Dreamland, the true tale of America's opioid epidemic, which was a New York Times bestseller and winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award. For a decade, he was a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times, covering, among other things, Mexico, immigration, and the border. He joins us to discuss his latest book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. The book charts the sweeping, shocking rise of synthetic drugs in the U.S. and their production here by corporations such as Purdue Pharma, as well as in labs in Mexico and China. The proliferation of so-called designer drugs has led to yet another wave of the opioid crisis with more overdose deaths between the spring of 2020 and 2021 than ever before recorded. The Least of Us tells the personal story behind many of these casualties, the larger political and socioeconomic shifts that have exacerbated the problem, the fascinating and disturbing history of the emergence of fentanyl and methamphetamine, and what some communities are doing to fight against the drug's devastation. Thanks so much for being here, Sam. Great to be with you, Kate. Thank you very much. So Sam, maybe we can just start by talking a little bit about how you began 
writing about and investigating this epidemic in particular, the opioid and drug epidemic in this country? Well, I lived in Mexico for 10 years and wrote mostly about immigration down there. I really didn't pay any attention to drugs. I was a freelancer. I was on my own and I figured I don't have anybody backing me up. So I think it's a better topic for other people to investigate. Immigration was far more interesting to me at the time anyway. This was in the 90s and then the early aughts. And I come back to Los Angeles, hometown, and to work for the LA Times. And on a few years into that, I began to write about the drug war in Mexico that has since kicked off very savagely. And I, nothing like I'd ever expected when I was in Mexico. As part of that, I wanted to write about, I realized that heroin traffickers were doing great business. I could not explain why that was, but sure enough, that's what was going on. And I began to write about, particularly in Dreamland, one village and town in Mexico small county where everyone had this kind of business idea of selling black tar heroin, very much like pizza, pizza delivery kind of system for black tar heroin. And they had replicated this and expanded like any fast food franchise pretty much across many states in the United States. Along the way, I began to understand why they had a bigger market. And that was because of a much bigger story. And that was the story of the opioid revolution in American medicine which I had missed entirely because I was living in Mexico during the whole time that that had been going on. And so that was like a big learning curve for me. The Mexican side of what I was doing was not that difficult. I'd written two books about Mexico, focused really on small town life in Mexico and my reporting. And so it wasn't that hard. This was a different kind of story though. And so I began to, I ended up writing, as Kate mentioned, Dreamland, which talked a lot about both the trafficker side and the pharmaceutical, the revolution in pain management in the United States. That book came out and I thought I was done, right? I thought there was mm -hmm. no other, but what, I mean, I was a crime reporter for many years by then. I was thinking old school and I just thought, well, what could be worse after heroin? It's the last frontier, right? As I began to travel the country and got more and more invitations to come speak about Dreamland, I began to realize that well, I saw what was after heroin, and I was as stunned as many other people, I think, to see the rise and eventually proliferation all across the country, literally, of fentanyl. And mm -hmm. as I got into that, then I began to realize that this was part of a much larger story, which was the trafficking world's shift away from plant-based drugs, which they had to grow, which was really their root. They were all ranchers and farmers when they first got into this. Well, now their children and grandchildren were transitioning to synthetic drugs, which could be made without any plant involved in laboratories. Well, all you needed now was chemicals. So it was really that process that led me to this latest book because it's a radically different moment. It's connected, but it's a radically different moment in our drug life than we've ever known before. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why synthetic drugs are more pernicious possibly than organic ones and you know how the laboratory model affects their distribution for instance how is the new meth different from the old meth you know that was a question i was wondering about sure all of this really obeys the needs and interests of traffickers i would say that customers almost don't matter in what's going on right now for traffickers the switch to synthetic drugs was clearly, you know, in their interest. They don't need land anymore. They don't need sunshine or rain. They don't need farmers. They don't need this large supply chain that accompanied the production and the transportation of plantains. All they really need is access to shipping ports. Shipping ports allow them access to the world chemical markets. 
And as long as they have that, they can make as many of these and as whatever quantity of drugs they want. And that's essentially what's happened. These drugs are far more profitable, far easier to make, far less risk than plant drugs. You can, in a lab, you can hide from the helicopters, you know. And so all of this goes into why it is absolutely in the interest of traffickers to do this. What it allows them to do then is produce drugs in quantities that we really have never seen in this country before, provided they have access to these chemicals, which they do principally from two ports on the Pacific Coast side of Mexico, one in the state of Colima, the other in the state of Michoacán, where they get relentless cargo loads, container loads of these chemicals. And so what you're finding now is that they are making these drugs year round and in quantities that are just stunning. They have achieved what no other group has ever achieved, I think, in the history of our country, and that is complete coverage. No other underworld no other single kind of area has ever done that, where you have now fentanyl and methamphetamine pretty much coast to coast. Very much, it's kind of mimicking the corporate world. You know, if you take a drive through our interstates, you will find the same Burger Kings and the same Hampton Inns and the same Applebee's, Cracker Barrels all along the way. Well, our drug offerings across the country used to be very diverse, depending on the region. That's still somewhat the case, but more and more, it's becoming more homogenized. So you've got meth and fentanyl, meth and fentanyl, you know, pretty much all across the country. These kinds of supplies have actually dropped the price for those drugs. It's an amazing idea that they could produce so much that they could cover the country and drop the price for it all. It just stuns me when every time I can really think about it. And so this is kind of what's going on because there it's coming in such gargantuan quantity. It's changing a lot about drug dealing. And so now what you're finding, for example, is that dealers at the local level are mixing fentanyl into cocaine, into methamphetamine, into different drugs, principally those two. And so you're finding people are getting addicted to fentanyl through what they think is cocaine. They're using cocaine and it gets them addicted to fentanyl. And after a while, they survive that and they end up being fentanyl addicts. I think one of the things that is really surprising it was to me is that I didn't quite understand the massive potency of the chemical drugs. Can you explain that a little bit? Because it also really explains what happens on the consumer side. Yes. First of all, fentanyl is the most potent opioid we're currently using. By the way, we should note, fentanyl is a fantastic drug. And medically speaking, it's a wonderful drug. I've had it myself. Everybody who gets into surgery, there's a very high likelihood you've been given a fentanyl. But in the hands of the underworld, it's a complete, utter, scary disaster. And that's what we're finding. It's just much more potent than morphine. What I mean by that is it hits the brain more quickly and with fuller force than morphine or heroin, or any of the other opioids that come from the opium poppy. And so that means that people very quickly get addicted to it, and the slightest misstep when mixing it can lead people to overdose because it's very easy to miss this stuff. When it comes to methamphetamine, methamphetamine seems to now just be, I'm not actually sure if it's purer and more potent than the, the way it was made before. What is true, too, is that it's in quantities that we've never seen and in parts of the country where they've really seen very little methamphetamine. Or if they saw it, it was made locally and, you know, in ounces, nothing like kilos or multi-kilo loads or anything like that. And parts of New England, you know, never saw meth of any kind. And now they have meth up there. 
And so what you have is this enormous supply that is changing a lot about drug dealing and drug use. So for example, nowadays, they have solved the big issue that faced drug dealers for the longest time, which was, where do I get my dope? Where do I get the dope I'm going to sell? That's not a problem anymore. You can find it anywhere. I mean, it's really very common. So now the big issue is, where do I sell it? And sometimes what you're finding is people, as I said, putting it into cocaine, they're selling counterfeit fentanyl pills made in Mexico, which are coming up here by the tens of millions, literally. They're selling those on social media, on Snapchat, Instagram. And you get also people who are involved in this now who are selling what used to be once considered kingpin-sized quantities of drugs who really have no no business really, you know, in the drug business. They don't know what they're doing. They make bonehead mistakes. And then when they're caught, they go away. They've served prison time for, you know, kingpin size quantities. It's just changing so much about how drugs are, are used and the consequences of drugs. You know, in the book, you definitely pay attention to corporate drug makers as well. So there is a lot of attention to the Sackler family, to Purdue Pharma, the kind of groundwork that was laid by the aggressive selling of prescription drugs. I guess I wonder when big pharma is so indistinguishable from the illicit drug trade, when they are so aggressively pushing drugs, when they also knew the drugs that they were pushing were addictive, that that was okay, that they kept on still trying to sell them. Is it wrong or foolhardy to kind of think of like the cartels and the big pharma synonymously or kind of mirroring each other since your book brings them both together? How do they collide in your story and how should we be thinking of them in tandem? Well, I think at times, given the for-profit nature of our medical system and our health system, you are going to find these cases that are outrageous. That's really how I envision the Dreamland book, which is twin tales of drug marketing. One by a group of guys from a small town in Mexico marketing heroin, and the other from a drug company, and how similar they were. And how once you get into it, what I found was they both were as addicted to their drug as the addicts they were selling to, except for they weren't, what they were really addicted to was the money. The money was a narcotic. The money kept them doing things that in the case of the guys from Mexico, they would get into this business thinking, I'm going to make enough money to go back and buy myself a taxi cab or a little business or some land or a good used truck or something like that. And what would happen is they would come back and they would be narcotized by the money and then spending it, everyone lavishing praise on them and asking them for money and asking loan, you know, and them being in the middle of the plaza buying the beer and, and all that stuff. And then they would go through that money without ever really having invested in anything. And they go back and they'd sell heroin again. They couldn't really imagine a life after a while without dope. Very much like an addict. Well, the same thing happened, I believe, with the Sackler family. And I talk about that in the latest book, The Least of Us. If you read the fascinating things, we've had all these subpoenas of records, internal records of that company. And so you can read huge amounts of their emails, internal memos, board reports, all that kind of stuff. It's a magnificent trove of information about how they were thinking. And the truth is, it struck me, as I said in the book, that they felt to me like they didn't imagine a business life without opioids. They never diversified. They had all this money, scads of money, unbelievable mountains of cash. They could have bought up five, 10 different drugs that they wanted to, and they never did. 
They never diversified. They never became a real pharmaceutical company. All they did was they stuck to this model of just selling this one drug, 90% of their income from Oxycontin, and that was it. And so it seems to me that when you get into writing about opioid trafficking and dealing and selling and all that, you tend to get people who act about as addicted as the folks who are buying the stuff, you know? And so that was a stunning idea. And as I read through some of the attorney general complaints against the Sackler family, I was struck over and over by the fact that they just simply could not make enough money. They needed more constantly. I was thinking, well, buy something else, buy another drug, invest in research that innovates a new drug. They just never did, you know, for years they never did. And so it seemed to me like they were just, when you get involved in opioids, it's all about the opioids. It doesn't matter if you're using them or selling them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about the two forms of justice that we have for distributors, like the two that you mentioned, like the small Mexican distributors or the larger Mexican sort of, what would we call them? I mean, they're not conglomerates, but but as you're sort of framing it, that they're almost like corporations in and of themselves and that they've managed to spread their influence around the entire country. But then we also have something like the Sackler family. What do you think about when you think about forms of justice or retribution or how to make good to the people who have been wronged by these sellers? It's a good question, but I I don't know what's going to become of, as we speak, I'm not sure really what's going to become of the Sackler family, although it does appear that they will move beyond the threat of criminal sanctions, criminal prosecution due to our bankruptcy laws. I know there are lots of people who wish that And a lot of those folks have very personal reasons and family members who've been caught up in all this. I would say there's a much larger reason, too, for criminally prosecuting this family. And I know there are certain attorneys general who want to do that. And that is that this has to be a cautionary tale, has to be a part of the enforcement of the rule of law. We didn't see any bankers really prosecuted for the mortgage fiasco of the 2007 and eight and so on. And I thought that was a real mistake. We needed to go after those folks. They needed to. So every CEO has that in the back of his or her mind as they're making decisions. It has to be part of that. If you think you can skate, you will do all kinds of things that you didn't do. And it's particularly true when you're dealing with kind of dicey areas that maybe aren't entirely clear what the legality is yet. I mean, I'm sure that the folks at Purdue thought they were doing everything legally, you know, maybe. And so to me, it feels like the rule of law is a precious thing. I lived in Mexico for 10 years and I could see that the rule of law was not enforced. And the injustice that comes from that is profound. It really is. And so when I was watching this take place, I was thinking, yes, I want justice for those families. I also want people to understand that you as a CEO, as a CFO, as a part of that organization, you have to always be thinking in terms of what this is, because these are criminal prosecution really focuses the mind. Once you see somebody go to prison, that focuses the mind, you know, and I'm not sure if we're going to see that. I mean, I do believe that people who are selling heroin in our country like they were need to go to prison like those guys. On the other hand, so might you think that people who ran corporations that flog this stuff like over-the-counter medicine, knowing that where they were headed with it was just going to be a disaster for those folks, or at least having that inkling may not have to do that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Sam Quinones about his new book, The Least of Us. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. First, we have this week's book recommendation. 
have Anna Della Subin on the line with us today. Her new book is called Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turn Divine. And Anna is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Anna, what book are you going to recommend? So I would like to recommend a book that was so influential to me in writing my own book. And that's The Myth of Disenchantment by Jason Josephson Storm. He's a professor of religion, uh, I believe at Williams. And the myth of disenchantment interrogates this myth that we all know that, you know, the enlightenment and the rise of science kind of chased spirits and demons and, you know, the occults like out of our minds and the world became rational and this has no place in our contemporary life. And he looks at how like that, that is an, is itself a myth and shows us how like the occult is deeply embedded in the sciences at every turn and how so many figures from like Edison to other kind of great polymaths were deeply embedded in these kind of mystical contexts. And he he's written a few other other books and just has a new book out called Metamodernism, which I'm looking forward to reading. Professor Josephson Storm has this kind of amazing eye for kind of leading details and narratives and quotations. He he's kind of able to like capture this kind of mythic plane in his scholarship. Mm. Yeah. For anyone who's interested in kind of ideas in my book, I would very much recommend they check out his work. It sounds great. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes. It's The Myth of Disenchantment by Jason Josephson Storm. Great. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. We've been speaking with Anna Della Subin. Her new book is called Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sam Quinones, author of The Least of Us. I was curious reading your book, where the U.S. rates in terms of drug use, especially considering how easily these drugs are made and uh, the distribution from Mexico and China. If those countries have seen also rises in, in synthetic drug use, if Europe has seen rises, or is it something you know similar to guns in the United States that it's just it's become a uniquely American problem here? Yeah, I would say that that's the case. That it it seems to me to be really a problem in in the United States more so. Of course, we had the opioid revolution in medicine here that created a lot of this. They did not do that in the rest of the world. Really, I mean, Canada's had a little bit of that, I would say. But I mean, most of the world has just been immune from that, you know. However, synthetic drugs are now, I think, going to be the norm throughout. I wonder what the rise of fentanyl is going to do to the heroin industry in Afghanistan. I don't predict anything, but I would be very interested to watch that take place. It may be that a lot of folks who grow opium poppies now can devote their crops to actually legitimate morphine for use in medicine. I mean, that's an entire possibility. But I will say that, yes, it seems to me that the parallels between drugs and guns are are pretty clear. You know, both, in my opinion now, function uh, through supply. 
They create demand through supply or they create problems through supply. More supply, the more issue you're going to have with drug addiction, the more issue you're going to have with demand being created when there wasn't any. And you're clearly seeing that with, and you know, the same with guns, the more guns that you have, I've covered seven in my career. I didn't write about this, any of this in the books, but I've covered seven mass murders in my reporting uh, breaking in my newspaper reporting career. Uh, one was uh, uh, Tucson with Gabby Giffords. I was, I covered the uh, Stockton massacre in 2000 and I'm sorry, 1989. That was one of my first, uh, my, my second job as a journalist. So I've been around on this issue as well a lot. And, and to me, the supply is the thing. It's the thing with drugs. It's the thing with guns. And it creates the issues when there's so much of it, when the, the supply is unbridled. It creates issues. And then what you get is with both of these problems, you get people looking for one solution that create, that solves it all. When in reality, in my feeling, both of these are crying out for small mosaics of solutions, you know, not one thing, but many. Well, after every shooting, you go, well, they say we should do this. Well, that wouldn't have stopped that. Who cares if it wouldn't have stopped that specific shooting? It would have done a lot to create other conditions under which these things don't happen. You know, when it comes to guns, too, I have to say this uh, and, and drugs because they are connected in another way. And that is that the impunity with which the trafficking world in Mexico, particularly on the northwest side of Mexico, function is due to a lot of things. A lot of, some of it is, a big part of it is, is Mexican corruption and the very weak institutions in that country, particularly in the criminal justice system, prisons, trial, judges, et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot of cops, all this stuff. There's a lot of weaknesses there. But the other thing that allows them to function with such impunity is all the guns that are bought so easily here and then are smuggled south into, the, into um, Mexico. Those guns have been ensuring their impunity for decades. And now, because after we made the assault rifles, we lifted the assault rifle ban, George Bush too lifted the assault rifle ban, I think you're seeing lots and lots more assault rifles go down uh, to Mexico. And, and part of the, the war that's kicked off is really has to do with the low assault rifles that are down there. Of course, a lot of other weaponry as well. It's not just that. But there's clear to me, and I think to a lot of people, there's a connection there between the amount of guns that, that flow south, having been bought very easily in the United States, and the impunity. And the will with which they, they are able to impose in certain uh, regions of, of, of Mexico. A lot of it is dedicated to the personal stories of the people that you that you follow, some of them from the very beginning of their addiction. Can you talk a little bit about the people that you met and maybe if you noticed patterns in, in the ways in which people encountered these drugs and became dependent on them? I would say that there is a very clear connection between the enormous supply of these drugs and how they affect people who are already dealing with major issues in their lives, a lot of which have to do with under the heading of trauma of various kinds, right? Could be mm-hmm. uh, divorce and an isolation w- within the family, you know, uh, could be that, that some mental illness, could be molestation, could be rape awful lot of that, a lot, a lot of sexual abuse and rape and, and, and that kind of thing. It could be that, that there's a, a just a, a kind of a neglect, certainly in poor working class families, this is, happens, but also I would say that there's a, a significant amount of it, sounds like, feels like, in, in wealthier uh, f- families as well. And when you overlay that on that, the quantities of drugs that we are seeing uh, coming out of Mexico, it's a stunning 
thing. And to me, that is the, the, you know, they have, so you have the environment, you have the opportunity and you have these, these moments when this happens and, and frequently people who do that situation find it very difficult. Then once they get involved in dope to get away from it because they don't have a lot of support. And number two, the drugs are everywhere. So it's, it's really a kind of a combination of things. But I would also say that we have a major theme of this book, I think, is the recovery of community, the repair of community. And we have shredded community so much in this country over the last 40 years. You know, one of the most important things that I, I learned was how essential to our own survival as a species was the, the, the evolution of the feeling of we need community. We need other people to join together with. That is how we survive. I mean, you do not survive if you're going to march to the beat of your own drum as a caveman and get wander off. You get eaten. You know, you don't have anyone to help you get food, you know. And so we evolved to not like other people. Sometimes we don't like other people, but we need other people. And I would say, and and in community and working together, that's why storytelling is so, has always been part of our species. We have always needed storytelling from the caveman to Homer, to Shakespeare, to tales told around a campfire in all parts of the world. I mean, what is the function of storytelling? To me, it's to bring people together. Same with music, music, someone just playing music alone without anybody here. What point do you have that, that? That's not why music is done. Same with sports. Same, I mean, there's all kinds of things you could point to as growing from eating together. These things grow to, from the, our need to be around other people. And I think in this country, we have done a, an admirable job of shredding all that, thinking that, well, we don't need anybody because, well, we got enough money and we got everything provided for us, you know, and, and then we, you know, we kind of expect the government to do a lot until we want to pay taxes to it and that kind of thing, you know, is there's all these attitudes that grow from that, that left us, in my opinion, completely exposed. You know, there was this, mm-hmm. there was this defense bulwark that we had that allowed us as a species to survive for millennia, for millions of years. And we decided in the last 40 years in America that it didn't apply to us. Same way that it, it, we didn't that that we knew that the opium poppy produced substance that was highly addictive to human beings, and we decided in the last twenty years that that didn't apply to us either. You know, it's like these, these ideas of like like we are uh, exceptional. I do believe, in fact, in some ways, America is an ex, an exceptional uh, country. As I lived in Mexico, and I was grew to appreciate that. But the idea began to spread to like we're an exceptional every way. No, none of the rules at all apply to us. And I think what what we did then was just just shred the bulwarks of defense mm-hmm. that every human being before us has known were essential, and we just decided they weren't. I wondered then because of that fractured quality of of the U.S. uh, because of just our culture at large, that even I I found it really interesting in the book that you talk about these industrial towns being hollowed out um, and that lays groundwork for drug use. But even um, at the height of industry, you say that people working in their factories with their boring jobs started to do drugs, sell drugs. So it seems like you know, that might be like the glory days of these towns where everyone had steady jobs, but it's not like they didn't do drugs then. So I guess I I wonder what you see as some possible solutions or through your reporting, you know, you must have talked to people who had ideas about how to start attacking this epidemic. Well, I would say 
I don't approach it necessarily as I'm looking for the solution for like your county or your town. Um, I think sometimes people come to my books with that in mind. I don't feel that's a good place for me to be because I don't live in your town. I don't live in your county. And, and it's, it's really so what I, what I set out to do with the least of us was building on this idea of community and this idea that we'd shred it and, and, the, and, and the idea that we always wanted like some great, solid kind of, you know, magical answer to, to solve all our problems and take us away from all the difficulties and, you know, easy answers to adult problems, complicated problems. And the opioid epidemic was that, right? It was like the, the complex nature of, of, of human pain having to do with the central nervous system and we decide, well, one solution for every human being, right? Pill for everybody, same, same kind of pill. I thought to myself, I need to get away from that. We need to get away from that. That is a dangerous culture. It's a damaging culture. And I felt that what I needed then to do, my role in that, was, was simply to find, try to find stories, simple, quiet, unnoticed, non-sexy stories of people in the smallest way, daily way, working daily to repair community, not for the entire country, but just their street or with a, for another person, you know, and that that was the attitude that actually could carry us through, could begin to develop bulwarks where we used to have them, we don't anymore. And, and so it was those kinds of stories that nobody else had, had done these stories and, and that the, the, the folks I talked to had never met a reporter before certainly never been in a book before. It was these kinds of stories I was really looking at. And, and you know, it's interesting in the interviews I've been doing um, for, for the least of us, you know, everyone wants to talk about the, the, the issues of meth and fentanyl and all that. And I'm happy to talk about it. And I wrote about it. But the, the stories that really enthralled me, that really made me feel like I was, first of all, testing my skills as a reporter, but also that I was doing something very new and different. Um, even though I broke these stories and, you know, broke the meth story and all that kind of stuff, I still felt that the most important stories, the heart and soul of the book, were the stories about folks kind of away from the spotlight, doing quiet work, not worrying, big thing was not worrying whether or not they're saving the world in some noble way. They're just doing it. They're just daily showing up. And to me, that is that kind of way where, where you just getting away from all the divisions and the nastiness and getting away from Twitter and cable TV news and, and all the ways in which we are, we are so clearly divided because all those media understand the benefits, their financial benefits to us being divided and us being prodded with these alarmist and, 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 you know, outrageous uh, in, in these alarmist and outrageous ways. To me, that was the thing. And so I, I began to write, for example, the story of a guy named uh, Bird. In, in Muncie, Indiana. Muncie, Indiana is an interesting town because it had two transmission plants, enormous plants, enormous plants, but the heart, heart of the town was the tool and die shop. And the tool and die shop is exactly the embodiment of the kind of st thing I'm talking about. Tool and die shop is a small shop, usually eight, 10 people at, at the most, something like that, where you're showing up every day to make the most infinitesimal change in say a part that you're then gonna sell to the factory. And through these, this constant attention to detail and working hard and showing up every day, you make these changes that may make your part more affordable by maybe two cents or a nickel. And that's a better way towards, you know, that's how you make your money and that's how the car gets better. In Muncie, uh, near these plants, lived a guy named Bird. Mike McKissick was his name, but everyone knew him as Bird. And he, as these plants, as these 
factories and, and the, then the, the tool and die shops too all began to fade and die out. And uh, the, the city fathers decided, hey, you know what, we need to we need to close this. The, we don't have the budget anymore to keep the community centers in these neighborhoods open. And one of them was right across the street from where Bird lived. And in fact, they closed it. They shut down their painting budget. And so but uh, Bird had worked there for a while and Bird kept the key. He kept the key. And as as the neighborhood kind of, you know, went through this horrible stress, economic and then the opioid epidemic, too. Bird kept the key and opened it for people. So the city fathers thought they'd close this place. And instead, Bird kept it open on guerrilla way, you know, kind of quietly opening this this thing for the kids to play basketball, for the, the, the older folks to play cards, wedding receptions for wedding receptions. He did all the work at the place. He kept the he kept the toilets running, placed, replaced the toilet paper, did uh, mowed the lawn, all that kind of stuff. He was a community center unto himself. No, at no time does he expecting like some award or anything like that. He was just simply doing what he knew how to do. To, weather, to help his neighborhood, which he born born in and grew up in, weather the, the stress and the disaster that had befallen it. To me, the story of Bird uh, McKissick is, is kind of one of those is one of those stories. You know, it's one of those stories where you just go, you you hear it and you just marvel at it, and you go, "That is our defense. That is the story we need." to tell, right? We need to tell the story of a sheriff, real, you know, crew cut, fox watching, uh, sheriff with a big chop tobacco and, uh, you know, uh, Keith Everhart in uh, in Hardin County, Ohio, who comes to understand as he becomes sheriff, is elected sheriff, that he needs to do more to find p- jobs for people who are recovering from addiction. And he either, he wants to convince other folks who goes around and trying to convince people in the private sector to do that. And along the way, he realizes, you know what? I need to do it myself. So he finds some money and he hires one of the most notorious addicts in, in his county. He was arrested many times, who's now in recovery again, working his way, you know, ground down teeth, emaciated. He's coming out of this years and years of addiction to heroin. And, he, and, and the sheriff gives him a job, first as a janitor. And then eventually, as, his, as the fog of, of dope lifts on this guy, he gives him a job as a um, dispatcher. You know, and it's it's like these kinds of stories in these small ways, to me, are the heart and soul of what I'm trying to say about about where we are as a community, as a, as a as a country. Right? It's not that everything that I write about in the book you should do in your county. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that this attitude is the attitude that I think will allow us to survive the way being in community survive, allowed us to survive for for millennia. And that's that's also where I get the title. I'm not a Christian, but I I was reading the Bible during during this while I was writing this, and I read Gospel of Matthew, and uh, you know, in which Jesus says uh, that what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. Well, Jesus Jesus understood this essential nature again, not a luxury. It's an essential part of our of our makeup that we need a community, and we need it to survive. We need it to thrive. We need it to be happy. We die very quickly when we're isolated. Many studies have shown shown this. People with in isolation yeah, live very short lives. And I think Jesus understood all that, right? And I'm just saying, you know, the opioid epidemic has shown us this. We're only as strong as the most vulnerable. We're only as strong as, as the least of us. And so that kind of, I know it's a long-winded answer to what you're asking, but to me, that, that's kind of where, where all these other stories that have nothing to do with the stuff that everyone wants to talk about, which is fentanyl and meth and all that. And I'm happy to talk about it. But they, they are really kind of my attempt to say, this is my role as a journalist, 
is not to tell you what to do, but it is maybe to suggest here's a few paths we might try, attitudes we might try. Well, that seems like a perfect and kind of lovely answer to end on. Thank you so much, Sam, for talking to us. Great to be with you both. Thanks very much for taking the time. That was Sam Quinones. His new book is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.